following is a member of the Growler Media Podcast Network. Find out more at growlermedia.com. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive! Welcome to Flash Gordon Minute, presenting your hosts... From Minute of Darkness and the Cosmic Geppetto Podcast, Brad. And introducing your intrepid explorer of Planet Mongo, Eric. It is Minute 98 of Flash Gordon Minute. Eric, how are you doing this fine evening? Well, actually, I'm kind of bummed because, well, Allison and I had a really great wedding. One thing we did not have was tons of lasers going off, creating awesome sonic booms in our honor. So I'm a little regretful that we didn't go that route. You know, you could do one of those, uh, you know, recommitment ceremonies. Ah. My wife actually, uh, not that long ago, we were at a very beautiful place, and she's like, oh, we could get, we could renew our vows here. It's like, eh, isn't that renewing the vows usually when the marriage jumps the shark? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, no, no, it's, I don't care. I would just want it. Like, yeah. She she was being romantic, and, and you you totally shot her down. Well, you know, I'm pretty sure J-Lo and Mark Anthony did like three renewals, <laughs> and saw that turned out. All right, but what is going to turn out great is we have our fantastic guest with us one last time. Eric, who is joining us again? We have professional animator Rob Pratt. Welcome back. One more day. Oh, thank you very much. It's so fun. Now, uh, Rob, you, you said this is your your first minute-by-minute minute experience? Yeah. Uh, so you having a good time? I love it. I love it. It's great. It's great. I mean, you do all these geeky arguments with friends and, and uh, family, and it's fun to do it on a, on a, on a platform like this. Now, have you, do you have uh, other podcasting experiences? Uh, have, you, you, have you had that fun before? Yeah, once in a while, here and there, a lot of um, animation ones, really. Cool. Well, we, we've had a great time with you, and uh, we have some fun stuff in this last minute. So uh, without further ado, Eric, Eric, what happens in minute 98? Well, we're starting out here. Kyle is talking to the colonel of the battle control room about uh, what's going on out in the skies above Mongo, uh, Mingo City. And I got a question for you guys. Just how incompetent is this colonel of the battle control room? Now, when we were first introduced to him uh, a couple of weeks ago... He, of course, was sleeping with his feet up, uh, just doing uh, literally asleep on the job. But now, Kyle is trying to figure out what's going on. The dude presumes Ajax is bringing back Flash's body. I don't ever, I, I, I don't work in a business where people get killed at the whim of their boss. And I still would never say to my boss, I presume so about something without uh, actual you know, proof to back it up. He says, communications are off for some reason. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, okay, do, do you want to speculate why the communications <laughs> might be off? And then finally, she says, are they following the pre-approved approach pattern for the day? It's like, oh, no, they're not. Uh, I, I mean, Kala must want to just put her hand in the screen and choke this guy with her bare hands. I mean, how how stupid can this guy be? This guy sucks so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wonder if this is just an indication of how much they don't worry about anyone attacking them. It's like, ah, people just sort of show up and leave when they want. Nah, everything will be fine. No one's going to attack us because, yeah, he's terrible. 
And and Ming, who rules through master manipulation, maybe he hires these uh, kind of <laughs> dumber guys so it's easier to control them all and not be worried about being overthrown. He does not have an impressive group uh, surrounding him. Uh, no. Once you get past no. the first level, Kala's great, and yeah, you know, you, uh, Eric still gets a little bummy when we, uh, you know, with the thoughts of his guy no longer being with us, old metal face himself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, other than but once you get past, and even there, still he wasn't d- didn't show the best of judgment at times. So, but yeah, yeah, he's. Between the pig army and this guy, just any, there was basically everything. Was, the only thing that was missing was a big sign on the front of the ship saying "We're attacking right now." <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but this is a good column in it. Uh, she, she's the only one. Is, she has uh, a lot of authority. She's taking charge. Uh, she's there's a great shot of her just standing there. She looks amazing with the outfit and hands on her hips and really. Uh, really giving everybody what for. So uh, it's a nice minute for her. I agree. Yeah, yes. you get a couple of her lines that are made iconic in the uh, the radio version of the Flash Gordon song, right? Yes. Uh, uh, um, what do you mean, War... Uh, right? What do you mean... Oh, no, what do you mean Flash Gordon approaching, I guess, would be actually happened earlier. Yeah, which line is from this minute? Uh, something fire. Oh, open, oh, yeah, open open fire, all weapons. That's right, yes. yes. Right, right. No, it's great stuff, and... Uh, and I tell you what, this is such an odd movie because it's uh, it sort of has some, a lot of old school, um, you know, male female tropes. Uh, but then it can be weirdly progressive. Where Kala is, she is in charge. She is running the show. Um, she's not play, portrayed as ditzy or incompetent. Uh, she knows what she's doing, and uh, yeah, good for her. Good for her. So you know, because. It's it's a nice sort of uh, counterpoint to, you know, women in, in being chained and dragged into wedding ceremonies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kala's the only is is the only female uh, main character in the movie that you know never has her agency taken away from her and and is and is you know c- you know able to portray portray herself you know uh, w- without you know being subjugated. Uh, by men. That's a good point. And there's a ton of different ways they could go on with this. I mean, good Lord, she actually outlasted Clytus. Um, and it, normally you would expect at, at this point that Clytus would be the like the last uh, the last barrier for Flash getting to Ming. Uh, instead, it's, it's Kala. Um, they don't have anything with her falling in love with Flash. They could have very easily just had like a plot line where she also falls in love with Flash. Because it's really that sort of movie where everyone's going to fall in love with him. <laughs> she has the agency. She's taking responsibility. It's like, you know, she she knows she's right. And it's like, you know, it, it's basically yelling out this. my fault if it goes wrong. But she's so, uh, and she's right. Yeah, yeah. And even the one time earlier in the movie when, like, Clytus, you know, puts his hand on her chin and says, you know, will, you, know will you manage without me? And she's like, I'll try. She doesn't even try to hide her contempt to Clytus and and hide her sarcasm. So you know, even there, when there's an attempted subjugation of her, she's just like, I'm not, I'm not having. It. It's like, yeah, I'll 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 try. Yeah, okay, whatever, dude. Very cool, uh, very cool. But also very cool. Uh, you know, we get Ming shows up again. Yeah, you te- you teased this yesterday, Brad. He's doing his uh, the, the patented Ming finger wiggle. Ah, yeah. <laughs> 
I imagine that must have been that's an that's a Max von Sydow decision, right? Is it something where and it could just be something as simple as one day the gloves weren't quite snug and he did that to sort of get them to fit better and uh, either he decided he liked it or the director saw it's like, "Oh, yeah, keep doing that." I don't imagine that was something in the script or that you know that Mike Hodges had in mind during casting. Yeah, it seems like an actor choice. Yeah, and if, if you get Max von Sydow doing anything, you're not going to tell him no. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it works so well, and it's so... And, and I think this is what Ming does great. There's just a great nonchalant malevolence to everything he does. And, you know, we, we called it out before when he did the same move. It's like, I don't know he's planning on doing those fingers, but it ain't good. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what else do we have? Well, the next uh, Queen song starts in this minute. Uh, this one's called Marriage of Dale and Ming, parentheses, end flash approaching. And this was co-written by Brian May and Roger Taylor. Yeah, you get some uh, some some good uh, you get some good May in, in these two scenes. Some great Queen music. Um, I, what's your um, Rob? Where where do you land on Queen? Are you a fan of the uh, Are you a fan of the band or? Oh God, I love Queen. Queen was the first band I really obsessed about and had to have all of their records. I love them. Yeah, they're so cool. Um, their soundtrack work is amazing. But what's weird about it, though, and I love the Flash Gordon soundtrack, and I love Queen, but in a way, the Flash Gordon soundtrack is kind of like their their coda, their jump the shark. They were good after this, but they were never as great as they were before it. Well, how much longer, when did Freddie Mercury pass away? 1990, early 90s. Okay, so they had, yeah, so we did 10 years after this. Um, it's, oh gosh, what, Eric, you're our queen aficionado. What, what, about when did they form? When, when did they release, you know, begin releasing albums? Okay, so he died in 1991. Uh, let's see, their first album was in 1974. Okay, so six years. Only six years before, wow. No, 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 16 years. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, nope, nope. I'm look. Wait, 1973 was their first album, and he died in 1991. So 18 years. Well, I'm saying before the before oh, Flash. Before Flash. Yeah. Okay. So seven years before Flash. So yeah, they had uh, four. They had eight albums, then Flash, and then six after Flash. But of course, um, those last two albums were the ones where just Freddie was just banging out vocals um, because he knew he was dying. Right. Uh, and that he left for the band. He's basically said, guys, I'm going to leave you with as much as I possibly can before I go. And then you guys just can release records after I'm gone. And so they released uh, two albums uh, after he died. I know they had that great song, The Show Must Go On. It was one of those posthumous releases. I love that song. It's great. It's great. They, I, I, and I don't want to, God, I wouldn't, I'd hate for anybody that loves Queen to say that I would, I'm saying they're not great anymore, but I do think they, they kind of peaked around the Flash Gordon soundtrack. They had that, the game album came out the same year. It was the top selling album uh, of the year. I think that's just, they were, look, they had a great career. I just think that their peak is right around the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Eric, do you agree with that? Does that match up with your, your view of the Queen's career? Um, no, I actually, I actually find them pretty consistent to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, I know that. I mean, I know that their sound, you know, slightly changed a bit in the last few albums. It wasn't 
it was a little uh, different than their first few albums. Uh, but I think as far as consistency with, you know, each album had X number of songs that were really great. And, you know, you know, a couple of the throwaway songs that every album has. Um, I think they were they I think they were pretty steady. I mean, my favorite album of theirs. Um, the problem is I have a, I have like all their greatest hit stuff. So the only album album I have is this soundtrack and the works. Uh, uh, and the works came out four years after Flash Gordon. Right, right. They, it's funny, all the albums pre-Flash Gordon soundtrack, they would, in, in exclamation point, say, no synthesizers. They were very proud that they didn't use synthesizers. Synthesizers. And then um, they, I guess they had to use synth to get the kind of score they wanted, and then there was no turning back. They were all synth after <laughs> that. Well, I mean, it was the 80s. I mean, you know, yeah. the soundtrack came out in 1980, and if there's one instrument that exemplifies the 80s, it is the synthesizer. That is that is true. I thought um, I just look my humble opinion. I thought their music was much more um, nuanced and complex before the synth, and then it got to very like simple chords while Freddie's singing. Um, the the music got simpler. Uh, you know, we, we, that's the nice thing. That's the fun thing about opinions, and uh, you know, we, we, so and it's sort of fun to go back and forth. So yeah, and. You know, sometimes when bands have that where they add an instrument or go in a different direction, it's just not going to hit people the, the same way. Right. So, and yeah, yeah, the 80s was a crazy decade anyway. Yeah, and they still had some great songs in the 80s. I, I'm not disputing that. No, no, of course, of course. Yeah, you know, Jump the Shark, everyone thinks that means that all of a sudden something's bad. It's like, no, the whole idea of Jump the Shark is... That might be when you you peak and may not be as great as you were ahead of time. But you know, I have, I follow plenty of musicians and bands and stuff that have definitely jumped a shark, but still love their stuff and they still put out great stuff. Perhaps just not with the same consistency of regularity as I might desire from before. Yeah, yeah, or it's just different. Once it jumped, it's different. Well, the only other thing I have for this minute is uh, I, I like the way that. Our uh, movie by minute is, is is cutting here. That we're ending this week. We've got a real you know moment like straight out of the old Flash Gordon serials. Flash tells Voltan he's not going with them, uh, and then you know the minute ends. So it's, you know it's like tune in next week, everyone, to find out what's Flash going to do. <laughs> That's quite perfect. I uh, I love a good cliffhanger, um, and it's a f- format that isn't used great all the time, or it's. It's a trope that you know TV shows for some reason have a tough time doing, especially now that we're in a, a binge phase where they just assume you're going to watch all 24 episodes in you know a two day period of time. Yeah, it, it's uh, so yeah, you're right. The minute just ends perfect, and it's in next week it gets real fun. So uh, yeah, very cool. Yeah, lots of fireworks coming up in the next few minutes, huh? Yeah, yeah. So everybody, be sure to come back next week. Um, so Rob, we, we we've been teasing this for a while. We we gotta talk about just really get into Flash Gordon classic, the uh, the the fan short film that you uh, animated, and uh, you, you got a great cast together for that. I was so lucky. Yeah, yeah, they did a phenomenal job. I'm so happy with their with their voice work because you actually got a Flash Gordon to appear in it. Yeah, I, that was fantastic. I felt like I got lucky with uh, Superman Classic because I met John Newton. We became buddies. And once that bar was set, I thought, well, if I'm going to do a Flash Gordon one, I've got to have a Flash Gordon. 
Um, so I did reach out to Sam Jones. I reached out to Melody Anderson. I reached out to Max Von Sito. And um, I just could not get anything to line up with any of them. And um, it, it got complicated with how were we going to record, where were we going to record. And then um, the, the danger of, I want to show Flash Gordon in his prime. He's got to be about 25 years old. Would Sam's voice still sound like that? Um, so then I thought, well, I'll hit up Eric Johnson. He's played Flash Gordon, and he was on Smallville on the Superman net. So there's a double, a, you know, double whammy there. And Eric was great, and I love his voice. It just, it's, I think it's absolutely perfect for the short. And there's a different thing about on-screen actors and in-the-booth actors, and you always worry that, are they going to be good in the booth? Eric was fantastic in the booth, and his voice is just perfect. It sounds like a handsome, blonde guy, and I, I'm just so thrilled that he did it. Yeah, it, it was... And there's a lot of this currently in anime stuff where getting the name. And I guess it started with the Shrek films where before then, you know, it was always about the movie. And when they started doing Shrek and they had Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy and Cameron Diaz doing the voice work and they did a great job. But then it was like a lot of what star can you get for these films? And there is a whole different set of muscles that are needed to be a good voice actor. You did a great job of casting that where you got some uh, really good voice actors to, 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 to do the work, and uh, it, it really helped that uh, that short sing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, G.K. Bowes doing her uh, Dale as a cheerleader could not have been better. She's absolutely perfect. Uh, Joe like, White's Zarkov, you know, we talked about, when I was sketching um, the drawings of Zarkov, I thought, God, who would I cast if it could be any time? And I really love Christopher Lloyd, and I kind of came up with a a pre-Doc Brown, more of a more of a Jim Ignatowski from Taxi, Christopher Lloyd design for my Zarkov, even with his hair. So if you look at it now, maybe you'll see that. And well, I, I thought, and my, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Um, so I thought, God, in, in my dream world, do I try to get a hold of Christopher Lloyd? Can he do that kind of thing? And his Doc Brown is a little bit of what I thought um, Zarkov could be. Um, but, you know, that that was like really reaching. And then Joe has done voices for me. He's he's done a voice on Carman that'll come up later in, in the shorts. So I hit up Joe and I didn't mention anything about any kind of accent or anything. I probably said Christopher Lloyd to him. And Joe has his own recording booth because he's a pro actor. and A lot of actors do that. And he just kind of sent me some MP3s and I listened to him. And then here's the accent. And I kind of didn't know what to make of it at first. And when somebody's doing you a solid, do I complain or about it? And I thought, well, maybe I'll live with it for a while. And then I watched the Filmation Flash Gordon, which is fantastic. And there's Arkoff had an accent, too. So that's when I kind of thought, okay, there's, there's precedent for it. I'm going to keep this performance because it's really animated and great. It'll be fun to animate to it. Now, I was going to ask, what I was going to ask was um, when, you're, when you're drawing uh, the characters for your short and it's got... Uh, Flash, Dale, Zarkov, Ming, and Aura all in it. Um, you know, these are characters who they're in the movie that we're talking about on our podcast. They were in the serials. There were previous cartoon versions of them. There's comic strip versions of them. How do you, you know, figure out as an animator how to draw these characters that you you give them your own twist on how they look? You don't want them to look like any previous version but you want them to at least look somewhat similar to the established versions, though. That's right. That's right. There's a reason people love these characters, so you can't get too far away from what they are. And like you said, though, you want to put, like, what, what your version is of it. 
And it was fun to read a lot of people's feedback on Dale being blonde. And for me, I thought, well, um, Gene Rogers had blonde hair, so there is precedent for the character being blonde. And then I got, I thought, well, sexuality and this fantasy of, of having women want you is part of what Flash Gordon is. And you would want to have a blonde girl and a brunette girl fighting for you. It seems like <laughs> the Veronica and Betty thing, right? <laughs> and then it's like, uh, and Betty's got to be the... Um, Shoot, I'm forgetting the names now with Veronica and Betty. But one, you know, the blonde girl is the sweet, innocent girl next door, and then the vix the dark-haired one is the the dangerous one. So it, to me, it seemed like well, you got to have a blonde Dale to to complement the dark-haired Princess Aura. Well, let's be honest. You did such a sexy design on Dale, and no one's going to notice what color her hair is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned this new term I'd never heard before: gainaxing. And I guess that's animated cleavage. That was brand new to me. <laughs> it, it was um and it was such a fun mix of the character the, the, the character and i would love to know to me the interpretation i got is the flash especially seemed like a mix of sam jones a mix of the old serials a mix of the old filmation um he, he was a little cockier than the sam jones flash we've seen uh, a little more sure of himself and uh, impressed with himself. Um, st still, still the good guy, still the the, the pure of heart, because all he wants to do is you know just save Dale and uh, and just confident of being you know and always doing the right thing. But it did seem like sort of a like a little bit of a a little bit more of a smart guy and a little more cocky and uh, it works so well in this. Well, thank you. Cause you know, that was a part that I really struggled with because I wanted him to be very confident, but in animation, you're always pushing things a little bit more than you would in live action. And I was always worried. I wanted, and I, I big reason why I love Superman is that uh, Clark Kent can be the one that's bumbling and unsure of himself. And then Superman's the fantasy one. So I wanted Flash Gordon to be the fantasy guy that we all wish we were as competent as him. And I played Zarkov a little bit more Clark Kentish than other, other versions of that character. But so how do you show a guy in a cartoon being confident, but then not being arrogant and, and unlikable? And it, I had an early animatic of it where Flash Gordon said the line, um, hey, nobody's better in the pocket than Flash Gordon. And I showed it to a couple buddies and I did have a friend of mine going, I don't like this guy. He is he is arrogant, and I just can't connect with this guy. And I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? Because I want him to be confident. And then so I flipped that line and gave it to Dale, and it was a happy accident. It made it fun for her to say that he's great in the pocket, and, and that makes Flash Gordon look great. It gave another scene of, of Dale to jiggle in and be fun in. Um, but that was a challenge, definitely. Uh, it, it was great. Uh, the scene had... I, it, it just had such a... And it's short. It's, it's a couple minutes long, and you're able to really encapsulate everything cool about Flash and everything cool about Dale and everything. And a great and Aura's in it for like three seconds, and uh, and she's so Aura. Um, and same with Ming. It, it was um, really a, a great way of encapsulating these uh, these fantastic characters. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's hard to do in just you know such a quick amount of time. You really. Uh, yeah, it's animation is very deliberate. I mean, you're drawing 24 drawings to make one second of movement. Everything's got to be so deliberate, and you only have that short amount of time. And I do make a little checklist of, I have like one minute, or if this thing grows two minutes to show these characters, I got to make one. You got to show this two. You have to show this three. You have to show that. 
And, um, and then it's, you live with this animatic for a long time because it takes so long to animate. So you're constantly, I put it on my phone and I would show friends that I would trust and get their in input. Um, and it's, you don't want to reimagine them so much. I've kind of a little bit turned off on how modern movies, people take these properties and they, they I, to me, I see it as ego where they want to completely reimagine them. It drives me nuts with w, what Warner's has done with Superman. You want to honor what somebody created. It was lightning in a bottle that it was a big hit. Flash Gordon was a phenomenon. So you don't want to um, take away from the qualities that made it really big. There's certain things you maybe you can play with. You know, his profession has been played with a little bit where he, he was a jockey at a, at a certain time and the movie made him a, um, a football player. But the very idea of him being a leader, a guy that's good, um, if you see... I, that's why I thought the, the, the movie made a great choice of making him a football player because if you see Ming the Merciless as this manipulator, he doesn't have any superpowers like, like Darth Vader or, or Thanos. He controls people by making sure everybody is fighting against themselves because he knows if they were to band together, he can't take them on. So what's the perfect hero to, to combat that is a football player who's all about team, you know, being a team leader. Um, in fairness, and I, I don't mean to correct you, uh, he's a player. He he's plays for the Jets, so I really wouldn't call him a football player. <laughs> uh, well, and then, this is another thing I would I, I want to say this for you guys to appreciate because I don't know if anybody appreciated. I, I tried really hard and was diligent in my in my research, and so for me, I thought, okay, so what team would he play for? The movie says he plays for the Jets. Well, I'm going to look up the year Flash Gordon was created. That's 1935. I'm going to see who won. There was no Super Bowl back then, but there was a, there was a, a football championship. It was the New York Giants that won that year. So I thought, okay, Flash Gordon probably should be for the New York Giants. And then who did they play against? They played the Bears. So that's why I have him in his line. In, in my short, he says to Zarkov, I face the, the defensive line of the Chicago Bears. I can do anything. It was a direct reference to that 1935 championship football team. It was a great call-out, and I love that, especially – the Bears, um, known for having, at different times in their existence, just devastating defenses. So it's like, oh, that's great. That's a wonderful call-out. Thank you. Thank you. So now I'm glad to say it here in a forum where I hope people can appreciate that line. The, the, the third short that you made that we haven't talked about yet, Bizarro Classic, um, which focuses, it's mostly uh, Superman and Bizarro shows up at the very end. What made you choose Bizarro as the villain to have in the follow-up to the Superman classic you made? Yeah, they, boy, I could have... I, it could take a long time. I'll try to keep it short. <laughs> so um, the first one hit so big. I mean, Variety wrote me up. Hollywood Reporter, the Howard Stern Show, had me on their Geek Time segment. It was really great. So Warner Brothers contacted me, and we had talks about doing some real... Warner's licensed Superman classic shorts. And I got so excited. It was the best meeting of my whole life. My feet didn't touch the ground leaving that meeting. And now a professional should not draw anything until contracts are signed and all that. But I was a fan and I went home. I immediately started storyboarding other Superman classic adventures. I boarded a, the Bizarro one. I, was, I storyboarded a Brainiac one. I started writing a Lex Luthor one. That would be, oh my God, it'd be so fun. And I was getting all these ideas together. And just like animation takes a long time, Hollywood takes a long time. Warner's was just not 
they were just going slow about everything. And I was like, oh, my, I'm so heated. I'm, I, I got these shorts and I've already recorded John Newton. I'm just, you know, so I started just pecking away at them. And um, I used to play this game on my computer with my with my kids where I would record my voice, loop it backwards and it would sound all weird and funky. And I go, OK, let's try to imitate that weird and funky thing and see how accurate we can be. So when we loop it backwards again, how close did we get? And that was just a fun game I played with my kids. So I had it in my idea. Oh, my God, I've got to do that for Bizarro. That would be so cool. He'll, John will say it backwards and then we'll loop it backwards and it'll sound weird. So I got really high on that one. But the, the Brainiac short is the one that John Newton liked better because we go into Brainiac's spaceship. He has a skull ship. And because I was doing this period piece, you know, 1930s, it had to look deco. And it really, the interior looks like, like an interior of a Flash Gordon ship. It's almost like getting a Flash Gordon Superman mashup. So I had both of these shorts and I recorded John for all of them. And, you know, John wanted me to do the Brainiac one, but I, I just had it in my head. I had to do this backwards recording of Bizarro because I just thought the idea was so clever. And um, so that one, that's, that's the reason why that one got made. And then, you know, things just never panned out with Warner Brothers. I still have the Brainiac one in full animatic with the voices recorded, with the music. I'm in love with it. But um, I just, you know, I got to do the other thing. I had to do Flash Gordon classic. And now I'm thinking maybe I might do an Indiana Jones classic. So I don't know, at some point, maybe I'll go back to that Brainiac classic. Um, and then the, oh my God, the, the Lex Luthor classic. It's Lex Luthor. That's his, that's his arch nemesis. That has to be the best one. And the idea I have for it, I'm just in love with and want to do that one someday too. But animation just takes so long to do. I loved so many little things that you did with the uh, Bizarro classic. Uh, one thing, when Bizarro flies through Metropolis, he's in shadow, so you don't see him really at this point. Everyone's supposed to think it's Superman, and you're playing the music from that you use in Superman Classic, but playing it backwards, and it's really creepy and weirdly off-putting in exactly the right way. And it was um, such such a great way to introduce uh, Bizarro. Um, and then one little thing that I loved, I absolutely loved, was. You have the, the the very common Superman trope where Lois Lane's this close to figuring out that Clark Kent's <laughs> Superman. <laughs> She's distracted by Bizarro flying by. Clark runs off. He goes to another room. He takes, lets out a deep sigh, and then it's time to become Superman, and his hair just plank, and he, the S-curl shows up. <laughs> and it was perfect. That was so fun to animate. And I did watch you my first take was going to be that I was going to do it more naturalistically. I was going to, when he pulled his glasses off, I thought maybe he'll shake his head too and the curl will kind of come out naturally. And then just, I don't know, as I had it storyboarded and it seems so fun to just have it, you know, with a little spring noise come out. And um, I, I'm glad that you that you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, that was great. Um, Love the design of Lois Lane. Um, Lois <sighs> Lois Lane's a tough character because she's not supposed to be a vamp. Um, the the toughest nails female reporter is a very is is a concept from a very specific time. It, it's almost like when they try to modernize the character, they suck everything interesting out of her. It, it, with Superman too, like he still works today. I think he's still a great character, but yeah, there is something to be said about that era. It really, he, he's a fantastic character in that era. Just like I mentioned, Indiana Jones, like Indy kind of belongs in that era. Certain characters can work in other eras, but 
there is a place where they work best. And I, for so many reasons, the secret identity, what you just said about Lois Lane, it just works so well in the 40s and 30s. Well, it's also just tough in, in a modern era to have someone who's a newspaper reporter. Yeah, yeah. That, that barely exists anymore. And then what you said about Bizarro and that music being creepy, what, part of the fun of that, too, is Bizarro is from the Silver Age of comics when you know comics had this huge backlash in the 50s where parents didn't want their kids reading them. And then so they had to go really innocent and campy. And, and Bizarro's from that campy era. But then the, the, my short exists in the Golden Age era, the World War II era. The, and so it was kind of fun to take a character that's from a campy era, but put him in like, what would the take of him be in the World War II era where things were more dark and scary? And, and I'm glad that that um, effective music, um, I'm glad that wasn't lost on you. Yeah, it's uh, you know, two things that really work to, to, and I remember the Bizarro from that Silver Age where he, he, would, he would like have a sign around his neck saying, Bizarro, number one. Yeah, and he always talked goofy. With that, aside from the music playing in the background, and then at the very last, uh, spoiler alert, the very last moment, having him attack and make that animal sound while he's attacking. Yeah, yeah, and I had to, it's fun to, um, you know, make your own shorts and, and you find sound bits on the internet or wherever you can get sound uh wherever you can get the sound and that sound i had to i think i combined like four or five different things there's a zombie in there there's a dinosaur in there um and a couple of other things um so it's it's fun when you get to animate you know at work at disney i i just you know well well now i'm directing but there's been times where i've just been just an animator or just a story guy and then when you get to make your own short you get to do sound design you get to do it all and coming up with that growl was really fun. Rob, this has been a fantastic week. Uh, I, I hope you had as much fun as we did because uh, this has been great. I loved it. Thank you so much for including me. I'm so honored, and it's such a fun concept that you're that you're doing. I think it's hilarious. It's great. Um, and what a what a fantastic movie to pick, Flash Gordon. It's fantastic, and you guys are great. Oh well, well. Thanks for coming on, I, Brad. If I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, he is the first guest we've had that actually has worked on something Flash Gordon. I mean, I mean, not, uh, you know, uh, in a way, yeah. In our in our in our movies, by you know, in our minute breakdown, not our not with our bonus interviews, but you know, as our uh, with our analyzing guests, he is the first one that's done something Flash Gordon related. Correct. Yeah, the closest we got is some people have gotten Flash Gordon tattoos. That's not really work. <laughs> Yeah, we were lucky enough uh, in our, um, we've been able to get uh, the composer uh, uh, of the non-Queen music. Uh, he came on and gave us a wonderful interview. Oh, that's fantastic. I got to hear it. Yeah, it was great. And we also had uh, an actor, Dak, from, uh, from Empire Strikes Back. Oh, really? He, he was uh, on the, uh, he was one of the pilots at the beginning of the movie. Excellent. Excellent. Good connection. It was uh, that was great because uh, oh, uh, and I'm completely blanking on the name because it's getting too late at night. Uh, Eric is um, I keep wanting to just call him Dak. John Morton. Yeah, John Morton. Yeah, you'll appreciate this because John Morton in like a very short period of time he did he was Dak in Empire Strikes Back. He was in Flash Gordon and he was also in Superman too. Wow, wow, that's great. Yeah, there's a lot of Superman Star Wars connections because they're filmed in England. Yes. And 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 uh, we've been keeping track. There's a lot of Star Wars Flash Gordon connections. Oh, that's that's wonderful because because we all know, right? Star Wars is born out of Flash Gordon, right? So that's sure. Great. 
wonder, you know, I love the movie, how it came out, and that's why we're here and we're talking about it. But I, I will always be curious in that alternate universe where George Lucas did get his the film rights to do Flash Gordon. Yeah, we, I want to see what that movie would have been. I know. We've talked about that with, with uh, multiple guests, including um, one of the co-hosts of Star Wars Minute, who was on with us a couple of weeks ago, um, that it would have been a completely different movie from what we got because he presumably would have done all of his innovative movie-making techniques that he brought to Star Wars, he would have done on Flash Gordon instead. Right. And so we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have had the campy B-movie aspect that we got with this movie, it would have, you know, it, it certainly would have taken itself more seriously. I mean, obviously, Star Wars has a lot of humor in it, but uh, it would have been a completely different movie. Absolutely, yeah. It, it would have been great, but it, it wouldn't be this. And, and I, I, I don't want to really want to be in a world without this. Absolutely. I agree, I agree. It'd just be a, a curiosity to, 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 to see it. <laughs> All right, so, uh, Rob, one last time, where can people uh, check out your work? Uh, please go to YouTube and look up my channel, Rob Pratt, where 2D animation is not dead. And on Facebook, I have an original character named Carman, the Road Rage antihero. And I put a lot of animation on there and Road Rage stories. So uh, please go there and, and participate in the Road Rage community. Very good. Uh, we recommend everyone check it out. Uh, Eric, uh, where can people find out more about Flash Gordon Minute? Well, we like to hang out and chat with you on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. We like to chat with you on Twitter, Flash Gordon Pod, or you can send an email to flashgordonminute at gmail.com. Yeah, um, yeah it's, this has been another great week, and uh, Eric, as always, uh, we got to call out our thanks to the gentlemen at Star Wars Minute. They, they are the ones who came up with this concept, and uh, we have a great time uh, in, in using it for Flash Gordon. Absolutely. Thank you, Star Wars Minute. Star Wars Minute. And also, I got to thank you because uh, this this whole thing was Eric's brainchild, and uh, I'm having a great time. And we have a chance to talk with great guests like Rob and uh, other people that have been nice enough to be on the show. And uh, it would not happen without you, Eric. And nor would it happen without my partner in crime, Mister Pennsylvania 1999, Brad Mendenhall. There you go. It's all great, and it gives us a warm feeling. But uh, I uh, I am a little um, feeling a little suspicious. Oh, suspicion. Because uh, I have been watching the excellent, excellent uh, YouTube series by Mr. Rob Pratt, uh, Carman, the uh, road rage anti-hero. And honest to God, it feels like every story that's in there is just stuff that I saw happen all the time while driving into Baltimore when I used to commute down there. And I'm just worried. Is, it, is, is Rob Pratt just somehow animating stuff I see in my life? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're worried that you're living in an aha music video from the mid-80s, Brad, don't worry about it. Flash will save every one of us. Attention listeners, you can follow us on Twitter at FlashGordonPod and join the conversation on Facebook in the Flash Gordon Minute Listener's Vortex. Stay tuned for our next thrilling episode of Flash Gordon Minute.